When we began uh, this sermon series on Romans several months ago now, if there was one thing, if it could be distilled to one goal that I, as rector of Church of the Cross, had for us as a community, for you as individuals, it would be simply this, that we, that you, would find ourselves, yourself, increasingly captivated by the goodness of Jesus, arrested, held fast, drawn in by the sheer gift we have in and through him. Our passage this morning from Romans 8, the final verses of Romans 8, seems perfectly suited for this goal. This comes as the climactic end of this chapter, Romans 8, itself chock full, brimming with the goodness of God in Jesus, as we've seen these past weeks. In chapter 8 as a whole, the entire chapter is itself a culmination of the, this entire section of Paul's letter, chapters 5 through 8. The entire chapter is climactic, and this portion is the climax of that climactic chapter erupting with almost this sense of defiance. What shall be said in response to these things? A summary of all that is yours in Christ, the overwhelming benefit that life in him brings. This morning, as we conclude our journey through this particular section of Romans, I'd like to group our time around two ideas. First, simply the benefits of Jesus. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. And second, just briefly hinting at weeks to come, the victorious life those benefits bring. So first, the benefits that Jesus brings. Second, the resulting life characterized by those benefits. October 30th, 1995 was a very significant day in the history of Canada, my homeland. That's right. Does anybody actually know what happened? No, I didn't expect it. No, yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, never mind. You don't know what happened in Norway on October 30th, 1995, either. Uh, on that day, October 30th, 1995, uh, a referendum was put forth to the people of Quebec, a particular province in Canada, the Francophone province that had been part of Canada since its inception, 1867, with varying degrees of happiness and dissatisfaction. And the question asked, put forward to the people of Quebec, was more or less, should the province of Quebec leave the Canadian Federation and become its own sovereign country, its own autonomous nation? This referendum was a huge deal throughout the whole country. I was 13 at the time, and I remember it dominating the media, it being on the radio, on the news, my parents talking about it. It was a feature of discussions in various classes I had at school. It was even a, a topic of conversation among us kids. The idea of this country we were a part of breaking apart, of this province which most of us had never even been to, leaving, was nonetheless distressing, was confusing. I distinctly remember on the evening of October 30th, I remember rushing to the car after my football practice. Yes, we, we play football in Canada, sort of, kind of. I was rushing to hear the results on the radio. I remember sitting in the car as the fabulated results were relayed. They were 50.6% to remain, 49.4% to leave. Very, very close. I remember commentators in the immediate aftermath speculating that this may have been the worst possible outcome. 
for the amount of uncertainty it produced, staying or going. A whole lot of uncertainty. The possibility of a future vote very soon. Life on the edge of a knife. It seems to me that many of us live in a similar state of uncertainty. More than that, it seems to me that many of us may in fact live life under the constant threat of a referendum of sorts. Secure or insecure, assured or not, loved by God or not. As I've spoken with many of you over the years, I've gotten to know you. As I've considered my own life and heart, these kinds of questions about security, assurance, the love of God, and questions about our status kind of cluster around two broad, very human experiences. First, the experience of living life under an accusation. The experience of not being enough. Not being able to hack it in life. The sense that you're always behind, not quite measuring up. That there's always some new, fresh test around the corner. Whether these feelings are explicitly religious or not, the sensation is related to what Paul has described in Romans as life under the law, a condemned life. I once described this experience as living life as though you always have an overdue library book. Living life as though you have a debt you never can quite get ahead on. Living under an accusation. The the second experience related to these questions of assurance or security, I think is that of simply being alone. From sources as varied as the New York Times to the United States Surgeon General, an epidemic of loneliness has been identified in the United States. Some of you know that intimately. This sense, often confirmed by circumstance, that we are ultimately on our own. That however many people might be around us, it is up to us, to our resources, to navigate the perils and challenges of life. And the nefarious nature of so much suffering is that it so often is an isolating experience, an experience of aloneness. Both this sense of life under an accusation and of life alone can be provoked by circumstance. If you're anything like me, difficulty or disappointment can so easily push you into these ways of thinking, these ways of feeling. I knew it. I don't measure up. I knew it. I really am alone with all the shame, anxiety attached. The results of a referendum always coming in. Our reading this morning directly addresses both of these spheres of human experience, accusation and aloneness. If God is for us, who can be against us. Paul in these verses is summarizing earlier points from chapters 5, 6, and 7 and most of chapter 8. And here Paul again makes the case that any accusation brought against you has been swallowed up in Jesus' reconciling death. I encourage you this morning to follow along with the reading in our bulletin. But in verses 33 and 34, the effects of Christ's death are reviewed for us again. Those who by faith are in Christ 
are reckoned, Paul says, as justified, are regarded as righteous. They share now in the same status as Jesus himself, beloved by God. That is true for you. Whatever you might believe about yourself or whatever circumstances in the world might tell you about yourself is ultimately irrelevant. Whatever stories you've bought into, the accusations that you've owned, they're swallowed up by God's generous declaration over you in Jesus, justified, reckoned by the Holy Spirit being rendered righteous. That is the everlasting benefit, the sheer gift of Jesus for you. And Paul's point here goes beyond just kind of legal mechanism, declaration, and speaks to kind of heart posture, the heart posture of God toward you that motivates this justification. He writes here of those whom God has chosen. This builds on language that Joe Ho pointed us to last week with that word predestined. I know that word gets us into knotted, controversial territory, so I'm gonna solve it once for all today. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Today, I simply want to focus our attention on the reality of God's choosing of you. The point here is that God has sought you out, that he called you, knowing you, knowing you well, intimately, better than you know yourself, and still he called you. He desired you. In Jesus, you are called, you are predestined for glory. In Christ, you have a destiny. In Christ, you have a destiny, a destiny that you share with him who was raised from the dead, a destiny that Paul says is irrevocable. That is, it cannot be called into question by any created thing. The results are in. The vote has been tabulated. Whatever happens in your life, whatever happens to your kids, whatever happens in your career, your vocation, in your relationships, in Christ, your destiny is secure. No accusation can be leveled against you. That is God's gracious posture towards you and me. And Paul says you can know this, you can be confident about this for one reason, the cross. Because God did not spare his own son. God was so intent to draw you to himself, to bless you, that he didn't spare his son in the effort. The language here in verse 32 of not sparing his own son is a direct reference to the story of the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham in Genesis 22. And the outcome of that story, the kind of moral or lesson that Abraham learns is right there in Genesis 22. The Lord will provide. Yahweh provides. And that's the theme that Paul is emphasizing here. He declares God has provided. Yahweh has provided in Jesus. So he's made this glorious, gracious disposition, this posture of blessing toward you known fully and finally in the cross, not sparing his son. I feel like this is a theme I come back to time and time again in various sermons. Perhaps it's something I need to hear again and again. But in your life, 
If you need to be reminded of God's grace and faithful provision, if circumstances are causing you to question the love of God for you, look toward the cross. Look there. Because that is where you see the clearest expression of God's desire for you, the clearest expression of his intent to provide for you. This is why the cross is so prominent in our worship. This is why it's so central to the Christian life. It's the ultimate expression we have of the love of God. We're called Church of the Cross for crying out loud. (laughs) It's this example, this clearest example we have of his generous provision. So as you think about, how am I going to pay for my kid's college? How am I going to survive this health scare? How am I going to get through this relational strife, this stressful time at work? If circumstances are not communicating to you that you are loved by God, refresh your acquaintance with the cross. Look there. Of his generous provision there, of his making a way for you there. What are you facing today? What uncertainty? What question about the future? About your place in the heart of God? Set your gaze on the reality that God has not withheld from you what you most desperately needed, his only son. And Paul's point is, how much more will that generosity continue, having him already given such a costly gift? It's like the ultimate case of the sunken cost, right? God is all the way in, in the giving of his son. So that generous posture continues. Allow that truth to minister to you. He will graciously give us all things. That promise there is not for like a Lamborghini in every garage or something like that. The promise is for all that is needed. God will take care of it. And Paul can declare that with confidence because of the cross. No accusation, nothing done or left undone. Nothing in the present or in the future will affect the status that is yours in Jesus Christ. And Paul's so very confident because of the past, right? Christ's death on the cross. But he's also confident because of something that's happening in the present. Jesus' ministry for you is not simply something that was done back then in history, but continues now in the present. That's the point of the, the, the latter part of verse 34. Jesus died and has been raised and is now at the right hand of God the Father, where he intercedes for you. That language of intercession might create in us this sense that Jesus has our back. He's defending us against this angry God the Father. But that's against the grain of all that Paul is saying here, right? Like Jesus is continually referred to as the expression, the one through whom the love of God, God the Father, comes to us. I think the picture of Christ's intercession for us is one of one who can empathize with us as one who is now fully human in the throne room of God. This is a bizarre claim. But at the very center of all things, at the center of all reality, is someone, a human being, who has lived and suffered as you have, who knows your weaknesses, who knows your temptations, and is permanently there, casting his vote for you, advocating on your behalf. That is why no accusation can stand. The one who is judge, the one who will rectify all things, is someone who knows you has demonstrated his love for you to the nth degree, death on the cross, who is always and ever, even now, gracious toward you. 
Do you sometimes feel as though life is stacked, the deck is stacked when it comes to your life? Paul's point here is that it is, but that it's stacked in Christ in your favor. There's this such remarkable assurance as though the game was rigged on your behalf because of God's love for you in Jesus. I'm sure your mind has already gone there with this, but we are already here in language that addresses this feeling of being alone, this feeling of being left to our own devices. That Jesus has ascended to the highest place, to the control center of the universe, means that you are not as alone. I am not as alone as circumstance might tell us. The same one who welcomed tax collectors, who ate with sinners, who drew children to himself, who wept with compassion over the crowd, is there in that place on your behalf. You are not alone. Ascension here, this idea that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, is not about like geographical distance. It suggests potency. It suggests capacity. When we pray, I've made this point before, when we pray our Father in heaven, we're not declaring something about God's distance. It's not like the equivalent would be saying our Father who art far off. We're saying something about his status, about his enthronement, his power. And this is Paul's point here with Jesus. He is on the throne, in the throne room, at the right hand of God, in the seat of power. It's the opposite of that Garth Brooks song, right? Friends in low places, in the very highest place, you have a friend in Christ. And the idea that Jesus has ascended to this place means the scope of his blessing is inescapable. You can't get away from it. He is near to you because he's in that place. Andrew Purvis, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, comments, the the range and purpose of the Lord's ministry means there is nowhere we can go to take us outside the range, the consistency of his love. There is nowhere you can go. Psalm 139, right? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? From your love. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will hold me fast. He is near to you. That is God's promise for you in Christ. Here and now in life and into the future, to death and beyond, there is no daylight, no inch between the love of God and you. That is the promise of no separation. You are not alone. In Christ, you never will be. Of course, all of this is not to deny the experience, the feeling that so many of us have of loneliness, of being alone. The sense of God-forsakenness we can feel. And it's not to deny the real failures of the church, of this church in fellowship, We are a community of sinful people who fail in this. And part of the word of the Lord for us in this promise is to embody more fully the reality that no one is alone in Christ. So we're called to extend ourselves to one another, that the truth that we are not alone in Christ would be rendered more plausible, more believable. Perhaps that is God's call upon you today, knowing that God is near to you, 
so near to you, as our Old Testament reading said, that you could then extend yourself, reach out to a sister or brother in Christ that might believe themselves to be alone. And that kind of action, small though it may be, is part of the life that the benefits of Jesus produces. That kind of action is part of what it means to be more than conquerors. This is something that we're going to look at more in the weeks to come. We're, we're taking a break from Romans next week, but in the fall, in the weeks to come, we'll be returning to chapter 12 and the chapters beyond, which are in the letter all about living in light of these truths. But for today, the, the promise of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father are so great. They so address our fundamental problems of accusation, aloneness, that to be in him means victory, victory in life, triumph, abundant victory in life, victory to such an extent that you and I can suffer, that we can endure circumstances, disappointments, failures, and even so extend ourselves to others. In verse 36 of our reading, Paul references Psalm 44 to make the point that suffering, even death for the people of God, for the sake of God, is within the realm of possibility. But his point here is that such suffering, such death, does not mean separation from God, the loss of his favor. Circumstances that we might readily point to to say, well, God has abandoned that person. Paul here says, mean no such thing. Victory in life is not a life free from suffering. It's not owning that Lamborghini or succeeding to make yourself so secure that you avoid difficulty or disappointment. Rather, the life of abundant triumph that Paul speaks of here is victory in and through suffering. It is the reality of being in Christ with Jesus, following after him, regardless of circumstance, firm in the knowledge of God's love for us. So much so that not only are you able to endure suffering in your life, but that you're able to extend yourselves to others in their suffering. In a sermon on this passage, Fleming Rutledge once commented, I used to have a rather grandiose vision of suffering. I thought that suffering for Christ's sake meant you had to become a missionary to Africa and die crucified on an anthill. I thought that Christian suffering meant you had to defy tyrants or march in the streets or stand before firing squads. Now I realize that for most of us it means something much less glamorous and more mundane. Being mindful of the needs of others, giving ourselves in a Christ-like sacrificial way does not necessarily mean lying down in front of a tank. It might mean making a call on a bereaved person. It might mean reaching out to a person of a different background or race. It might mean asking your children or your spouse to forgive you for your defects. It might mean confronting a friend about a self-destructive habit or asking for help with one's own self-destructive habit. That's not an exhaustive list. But the absolute mundane nature of that list, that list of possible actions, suggests that living triumphantly Living this life of victory is within the reach of us all. Not because we have such wondrous capacity in and of ourselves, but because of the transformative nature of all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has given us and does now give us. In the language of Psalm 15 that we prayed just earlier, it is through him, Christ, that we dwell in God's tabernacle. 
It's in him that we find rest in the presence of God. And through him, we shall never be overthrown. So what shall we say in response to these things? How? Response to these things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.